Welcome back to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and we are live at New York Vet this week. We are having so much fun today, getting an opportunity to sit down and speak with some of the presenters here at the conference in New York and talk a little bit more about what they're presenting on, get the tips and the tricks and the knowledge that they're giving to all of the attendees here at New York Vet. Straight out to you guys, our listeners, and this conversation I'm so excited to have with Dr. Lance Rosa. Dr. Lance, thanks for being here. Hi, Becky. Great to see you. I'm excited for this conversation. Your presentation here is so you're thinking about buying a practice. Yes. And I love that conversation and that content. But before we get into that, tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself. You have a very interesting background. Thank you. Yes, it is. It's been a, a bit tortuous background. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I am a veterinarian. Came out of veterinary school in 2008, bought a practice within 13 months of graduating. Not really by design. It just kind of happened like that. I uh, found myself thrust into the practice ownership. Owned that practice for five years. Actually ended up selling that practice and then went to law school um, with the sole purpose of helping and representing veterinarians in practice ownership. And so the whole time I was through law school, I had this lens on thinking and looking at, at the law from a practice owner's perspective. Had no intention of buying any more veterinary practices, but actually before I graduated law school, uh, started buying practices and subsequently have bought quite a few more. Some would call that a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Truly a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I, th I think of that myself quite often. <laughs> but that's okay, right? Because you have this really niche, well-rounded like learning opportunity and teaching opportunity, and you can really help veterinarians and veterinary practice owners because it doesn't, in some states, have to be a veterinarian. Correct. You're able to help them do this and do it better, which is long-term success, right? Yes. One of my favorite things to do is help veterinarians and non-veterinarians, for that matter, interested parties, get into the practice ownership fold. I want to make it accessible and doable and understandable for people that want to do it because it's very possible. I really think that there's a kind of a misconception that practice ownership, especially among private practice veterinarians and others, is going away, and I just don't see it at that as that. Okay, and I think that's important to hear, right? Like that it's, it isn't and that there is still a market for buying practices. There's still a reason to buy practices. And, you know, when we talk about that reason, I kind of go back to when I looked at your proceedings in the first place on this lecture and the first word that jumped out at me, just like when I looked at them in general was why. So you are exactly right. Like we need to start with why in so many cases, but in this particular case, you want to buy a practice, you start with why. Absolutely. And so, yes, I mean, from a practice management or practice, you know, team building, you know, tight fold, everything that we do, we should stop and say, why? Why are we doing this? Let's really pull the reasons out and explain that to everyone involved. And so I kind of have that lens on, but also, too, you know, I'm thinking about this from when uh, somebody bought, calls me and says, hey, I'm thinking of buying a veterinary practice. Let's do it. And the first conversation that we have is, is no, let's pump the brakes and let's really understand why we're doing this. What are the reasons behind buying a veterinary practice? What are the reasons not to buy a veterinary practice? And let's break that down. What are your personal reasons for buying a veterinary practice? And then we can look at some numbers and we can understand what, you know, salaries and what expected profitability will be. But really there's a lot of soft factors, some non-financial factors that come into play as to why someone would buy a veterinary practice. Okay, so why are some of the whys? What do you hear and what are the healthy whys, the good whys? Sure, so absolutely hands down, the why that I hear most often is the money. So practice owners, their salary, their profitability goes up almost every single time. That would be a real red flag if your salary goes down after buying a veterinary practice. And practice owners, on average, 
make a good bit more than associates. And we're talking thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars more. And so when someone comes to me almost every single time, the reason that I want to buy a veterinary practice is because I'm going to make more money. And I say, yes, individually we need to look at this practice, but secondly, on average, that is true. And then secondly, there are some things financially to think about as well. So veterinary practices are typically good investments. They're good ways to build equity. They're good ways to really build personal wealth. And so more than just your salary year over year over year, some of that money is going to build equity and invest. And so those are all reasons financially why to buy a veterinary practice. All right, so then flip the coin, why not? Yeah, so this is probably the biggest reason to stop and really pump the brakes. Why not? Well, every practice owner will tell you that the time commitment is intense. Owning a veterinary practice takes an inordinate amount of time because you are the person that everything falls to. You're the person that has to finish every single task of the day. And so that would be a real reason why not. I mean, it really cuts into family time, to vacation time. Now, over time, that can grow as the income and the passive income and your salary grows and the practice grows, but at least from the get-go, practice owners will tell you that there's a lot of time pressure. Secondly, there is a ton of stress. And so, you know, every practice owner that I've ever talked to say that people problems are their biggest stresses. It's not the medicine, it's not the facility, it's not the air conditioner, it's not things like that, it's the team. And so, you know, the stresses of dealing with people are real and, and and they're big. And so secondly, you know, can we unpack and handle those stresses? And then thirdly, reasons why not, there are risks involved. And so there are liabilities that a veterinary practice owner takes on. You know, from a legal perspective, we can mitigate mitigate a lot of those risks. We can buy insurance and listen or shift that risk to someone else. But at the end of the day, practice owners are putting their name on big promissory notes that involve big payments and interest payments. And if things go bad, they have to pay. And those things are expensive and those risks are real. So we really want to understand the reasons why to and why not to buy veterinary practice. So with those reasons being the healthy reasons to and not to, what are the most common reasons people are actually doing it? Are they Do they fall in line with that? Or are people maybe working outside of these maybe more rational decisions and ending up buying practices? And, and like, where are they going wrong? So what you're saying, are people in the veterinary profession make irrational decisions? <laughs> Yes, uh, they do. Once in a while. <laughs> We're all <now> here. <laughs> and so, yes, those decisions do become irrational. I yeah. think that that should be the attorney's job to step back and say, let's and help their client make a rational decision on whether to buy or pass on that practice. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I kind of equate, I end up doing a lot of surgery when I practice veterinary medicine and the best surgeons make the one decision to cut or not to cut. And so sometimes you have to say, you know, now is not the time to buy a veterinary practice. Let's move on. And so we do not want this person purchase to be an impulse purchase. We do not want this purchase to be an irrational purchase. We want this purchase to be a fully thought out, fully investigated purchase. And at the end of the day, that purchase, the risk have to be less than the benefits. And so the benefits have to outweigh the risk. And we have to put all those things on the table to make that fully educated decision. So if a veterinarian or a interested party, which makes me feel very lawyer speak, by the way, I'm going to use that (laughs) one. If interested parties, is this the first thing they should do is go consult with a lawyer if they want to buy a practice? What does that first step look like? Where does the lawyer get involved? Great question. And so the thing not to do is involve an attorney or lawyer at the last minute. Sure. And so the earlier in the process, the generally the better. It doesn't necessarily have to be an attorney. You know, I would say seek some professional advice early in the process. This could be a an accountant that is very well versed in the way that practices are bought and sold. This could be a financial advisor that's very versed in these things. This could be a, a good friend. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be an attorney. 
attorney. Certainly a lot of attorneys do help clients very early in the process. I can certainly tell you that veterinarians and interested parties yeah. that do call, you know, we start from day one with this. And I would much rather be involved early in the process versus late in the process where I'm just working with the hand of cards that's already been dealt months ago. Yeah, and, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And we do have a tendency, I think a cart gets in front of the horse a lot of times. and Or it's kind of like you said, the opportunity presents itself before they've even maybe thought about it. Because that's what happened with you. Mm-hmm. That worked out good to your advantage. But how badly could a year of situation have gone, I guess, in that case? Yeah, actually, so, you know, my decision was very much an impulsive decision. I'm the poster child of stopping and thinking about why you would buy a veterinary practice. And so, I mean, literally, I was unhappy with current position as an associate, 12 months out of veterinary school, got online and started looking for veterinary practices, you know, really put an offer in well before the practice well before I knew a lot about, before I assembled my team. And I mean, in a matter of weeks, we're talking six weeks, I bought a veterinary practice in a state that I didn't live in. And so the process can certainly, you know, start down a set of train tracks and it can certainly be an impulsive decision. Yeah, I'm glad it worked out the way it did for you. But I mean, I think that maybe it actually contributes to what you've you learned along the way, right? And, and to how you help guide people because you can see in hindsight how poorly that could have gone. And that was a big leap for you of faith. Yeah, it will certainly a leap of faith, but mostly just a leap of luck. And so, you know, luckily I called the right people, the right advisors, and they were to help, able to help me through it. But I have easily could have called the wrong people, and I had no idea what I was doing and been much different position now. That's scary and stressful, but I love that you are out there and that we're talking to people about letting them know there are people out there to help guide them through this the right way, because I don't know that we always even think about outsourcing for that kind of guidance. Now, one thing in your lecture you talk about is non-traditional ownership and traditional ownership. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. So I, what I don't want to get pigeonholed, I don't want people to get pigeonholed practice into a situation where it's purely just a bricks and mortar situation. And so bricks and mortar veterinary practices are what most people think about when they think about owning a veterinary, you know, the shining practice on a hill that people think of. And they usually think of beautiful facility, you know, great signage and things like that. And I just want to remind people that there are a lot of other modalities for own, being a practice owner. Now, one thing to really, you know, kind of stop and think about here. is is when we're talking about the valuation on veterinary practices, the bricks and mortar practices certainly are worth more than your others. And the others that I'm describing here are ambulatory practices, mobile practices, you know, specialty practices if it comes to a specialty service like surgery or internal medicine or ultrasound, chiropractic, acupuncture. Don't forget, all of those folks are practice owners. Yeah. Um, and so, and they own their own practice. They make their own decisions. They set their own fees. They have all the autonomy that a practice owner does. And then they arguably have more freedom sure. family-wise or whatever else. And so those types of practice are very important important to our profession. I think that, you know, as the profession continues on the track that it currently is with corporate aggregation, et cetera, individual veterinarians, that's a real way for them to enter the practice ownership fold without taking the full risk of a bricks and mortar practice. And I mean, it almost gives you the opportunity to capitalize on what you like the most and what you do the best, right? Like I think about, um, there's a veterinarian in my town. Her name is Melissa Stahl. She's amazing, wonderful orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. And she now has this business where she goes into, I, she's not the only that does this, but she goes into GP and does orthopedic surgery, sure. right? So when my dog needed to have her leg amputated, I was able to take her to her everyday veterinary practice where she regularly goes, and a board-certified, you know, veterinary surgeon came in, did the amputation. Now it happened to be that I, I knew and already loved this veterinarian, and I knew that she would do a great job. But I also still had this level of comfort of my girl being at her everyday practice. And Dr. Stahl has got this great business going on where she is traveling about, like you said, she's got control.
control. She's got autonomy. She's doing what she loves and she doesn't have a lot of the capital. So there is an opportunity to really look at what you love to do and what would make you super happy in your perfect world. And mm -hmm. does that translate into some kind of business and ownership? Absolutely. And, and the thing that, you know, and you may not know this, but I actually paid my way through law school by doing traveling non-boarded orthopedic surgery. And so I would go in and do orthopedic surgery and we're talking limited and simple procedures here, ACLs, MPLs, yeah. things along those lines. Now these are not necessarily specialist type procedures. Right. We're not talking TPLOs and pelvic fractures here, but it's something a bit above the general practitioner's kind of comfort level. And keep in mind, I had a lot of private practitioners, practice owners that said, hey, we'd rather pay you to come in to stand in surgery. We'll go work the exam rooms. And the fees were in a way where clients were much willing to say yes. Now every client knew that they weren't receiving board certified orthopedic surgery, but that's a choice that the client made and they, you know, and I'm comfortable with doing Doing those procedures and so you don't necessarily even have to be boarded to do some of these things but sure. I think it goes back to what you're talking about do something that you love yeah and so if it's something that you really enjoy for instance I have one client that I work with that does feline behavior only practice and yeah. so she goes she does house call practice she loves behavior she loves felines and that's she's built an entire practice around that my wife, for example, is a is an acupuncturist and chiropractor, and so she built her practice around acupuncture and chiro. In the veterinary industry. Yeah, she's yeah. a veterinarian, yep. And so, you know, again, she's a specialist and she's a practice owner. She makes her own rules. Yeah. Trust me, I know. <laughs> at home and at work. <laughs> at home and at work. But that's her way to own a veterinary practice without the risk and the capital that's involved. And just to be like, you know, touchy-feely about it and increase your job satisfaction potentially, right? Sure. Like, And I, I love the idea of like what you talked about paying your way through law school with doing this thing you enjoyed that took a, like I, I, I as a technician don't actually, guys don't get mad love surgery okay like I know a lot of you guys do you can have my spot in surgery <laughs> I personally don't love surgery and I would rather be out in the clinic doing those things and I think it's really nice to give veterinary professionals permission to not like every aspect of veterinary oh, medicine because yeah. we are so diverse and say that there are people out there and we can be serving each other right by saying you get to do what you love I don't have to do this thing I hate my patient's gonna get the best and we're all gonna be happy so I think this is really a cool thing for people to think about when they're getting that burnout when they have that job to satisfaction. And I, I think everyone listening could think of a time that they said, I wish I could just do this all day. You know, I mean, I get it. Puppies, kittens, whatever, behavior, nutrition, cardiology, but I don't want to be specialized or this, that, and the other. But there is some way to capitalize on that. And I just think it's so important for us to like break that up, right? And like yeah. to not fall into that like you talked about. And that kind of comes back to that skill set. And like we talked about, it, you know, if there isn't something you're, you don't feel comfortable doing, it doesn't mean you shouldn't own a practice, right? So you don't have to be amazing at all aspects of veterinary medicine to own your traditional brick and mortar. Like say you don't have an area you want to specialize. I want to be a GP, but I don't love X, Y, or Z. You can, you're still a still candidate, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's the beautiful thing about owning a practice is you can build your practice and your clientele around specific things. And so if you want to build a practice that's heavy on dentistry because you love dentistry, go for it. If you want to build a practice that refers most of their dentistry to a practice down the street, go for it. That is the discretion that the owner has. Whereas an associate may not have that discretion on right. what cases to keep and what cases to refer. So I want to go back to something you said about the people problems. Now, I don't think this is, I don't think 
think that's a leap to the veterinary industry. I think if you own a business in general, sure. people problems is probably the biggest problem. But how do you navigate that with veterinarians? What's your advice there? And you know, we might have great technical skills, but the soft skills part of thing, maybe yeah. not so much. One of the most common questions that I get asked, you know, so recent graduates, students, veterinarians thinking about buying a veterinary practice, et cetera, or, veter- or people in the space thinking about, hey, I want to buy a veterinary practice. So therefore they'll say, what should I go study? What should I go research? What should I go learn about? You know, I'm thinking about taking a night class in accounting. I'm thinking about going in and getting an MBA. I'm thinking about, you know, adding to my skill set. And my advice is to stop and think about what skills a skilled owner, a good owner does all day. And in my mind, it kind of breaks down to two distinct sets of skills, soft skills and hard skills. And so, you know, they can be called other things, but the soft skills, you know, leading to the technical skills that you just referred to. And so giving advice to a veterinarian or a person thinking about buying a practice, I would look heavily at those soft skills. So I would look at HR, I would look at people, I would look at communication, I would look at leadership, I would look at those types of skills and I would read everything that I could on those things. I wouldn't necessarily go get an you know, advanced degree in leadership sure. or something like that, but I would read and think about all of those things as much as I could. What do they say when you tell them that? Is that what they want to hear or are they like, what? No, they think, so most people think owning a practice is doing finance and marketing and accounting. Well, those are hard skills. Yeah. Those are in, uh, And also coincidentally, those those are skills that you can outsource. You can hire a great accountant. You can hire a great inventory manager. You can hire someone to help you with the marketing of the practice. You can't hire someone to have communications with your team. You can't hire someone to just develop strategy and leadership for your team. That's something that you really need to have in-house and something you need to follow every day. And we hear so much about crappy clinic cultures that like this is probably the most necessary part, right? This is really, if you aren't gonna go out and seek advice, take it from here and take this advice and find ways to be a better leader. Where do you send people to do that? Like, what do you what do you think is important there? Uh, as far as the culture piece? Yeah, and, and so, like the soft skills. Well, so I'll quote one of my favorite people in veterinary medicine, a guy named Rick DeBose. He's up at Washington State. And Rick is, in my mind, the culture guy in veterinary medicine. He's behind a lot of the leadership initiatives and things along those lines. And he helps veterinarians through culture issues you know regularly and I was just up in Washington State this weekend talking to him but his one of my favorite lines from him he has many lines he's Uh one of those type guys is culture eats strategy for breakfast and so you can strategize you can plan you can create Gantt charts you can do all these beautiful things for your practice that supposedly lead people in the right direction but if you haven't stopped and worked on the culture from the get-go people are gonna do what they want to do so when somebody buys a practice obviously they're not not obviously shouldn't say that most of the time they're not buying it from day one and square one they inherit a practice they inherit a culture they inherit a history yeah then what yeah so this is one of the things that I actually spend most of my time in my professional life doing and that is buying veterinary practices for myself personally and then converting the cultures of those practices. So every single time there's another practitioner that's transitioning out, there's a culture that myself and my group is taking over and we have to find a way to lead the team into this new culture without just eliminating the whole team, right? That is not what we want to do. Right. We want to we want to work with the people in place, but there's many times that we want to change that culture. Well, number one, and this is, I don't have my legal hat on here, you know, have my practice owner hat on, is 
is we don't do a thing for four months. Okay. And so we sit, listen, observe, watch the team, understand what's going on, understand the why and what they're doing, and don't make any recommendations or changes. And then at the four month mark, then we slowly start making some changes only for the betterment of the team. And so if that means, hey, there's a better way to do this, hey, let's introduce this technology tool, hey, your software, a little bit outdated, you know, let's bring in a, a little bit faster and more efficient software and make changes that are going to improve the team's life. And then once you have some buy-in and some trust behind the team that we're trying to improve things, then we can make some other culture changes. But then, you know, then we start letting the team dictate the culture. We all work in veterinary medicine because we care. We care about people. We care about their pets. We care about the work environment that we're in. Well, let's get on the same page and talk about those things, establish that those are the things that we're going to work towards. And that's how we go about changing the culture. At the end of the day, we know that it takes time and we're talking years. And so, you know, I won't pass judgment on a practice for two or three years before we, you know, we're going to continue to work to get the culture turned around. That's pretty incredible. And I think it's important to hear and kind of resonate on that. Like years, it takes years. Like we can't expect change in a couple months. And I love that you go in and you give them a few months to know you're not here to change everything all up and do different things differently because it's scary to be in a practice that's purchased and it's scary to see, not know what's happening and not know what's coming. And I love that you give them the opportunity to listen. And I think it's a great lesson that is a great takeaway that you should observe what's already going on and understand the why, whether you know there's a better way or not, or you know it can be improved. Letting them know that you are not only there to observe what they know, it's to understand why it's important to them or why we're going to do it a certain way. I think that's pretty essential. And I, and I, I think it's an important aspect that people have got to take in into consideration. So what I know from a lot of veterinarians, I know personally, they ha have a challenge. They want to buy a clinic or they want to be a practice owner, but they signed a non-compete. And you hear a lot about non competes and oh they don't hold up in court or they this or they that can you talk to us a little bit about non-competes and do you get that question a lot from people get that question a lot in fact that's one of the things that we actually touched on in the session just a few minutes ago is if you're thinking about buying a practice in a town where you're currently employed check that non-compete ideally let's check that non-compete before we sign it and so let's negotiate that thing in a way where you it gives you a way out of owning a practice before you actually sign it and so, you know, associate veterinarians are in the driver's seats many times on hiring agreements at this point. And so that not number one, that non-compete is absolutely negotiable going into the employment. Now, if you're already in a non-compete and you're thinking about buying a practice and it's within that non-compete, then things get a lot trickier. And so you've already signed it, not negotiable at that point. And then once you bring it up to the practice owner, to the group, well, now you're telegraphing that you're about to leave and buying a practice or starting a practice. And that's when practice owners get really antsy about letting an associate out of a non-compete. So in my experience, I find that jumping from job to job, associate to associate, a lot of practice owners won't push the litigation and the in pursuing that non-compete heavily in those instances. You leave a practice to go form another practice, buy a practice, start a practice within the non-compete radius, that's when practice owners really get defensive and really start litigating and pursuing those non-competes. But your question goes back to, are these enforceable? Yes, in 45 states, non-compete agreements are enforceable if they're written reasonably, if they're written correctly. And so another little tidbit about my history that you have no way to know, that my senior paper in veterinary school, I'm sorry, my senior paper in law school was on non-compete agreements in Makes veterinary sense. medicine. So I did the complete literature review, found over 300 cases in the last 15 years 
on veterinarians being sued over their non-compete. And these are reported cases. And so these are cases that go to the appellate courts or higher. And so in my estimation, we have thousands of cases that were taken care of at the county court, the lower courts, that were never reported. And then we have tens of thousands of cases that never made it to court. They were settled out of court. Super common and super enforceable if they're written you know, correctly. My office takes about three non-compete calls a week. And so wow. veterinarians that are either seeking to enforce or veterinarians that are, are facing enforcement for their non-compete. It is not something to ignore, let's put it that way. What makes a reasonable non-compete? Um, so the factors that a court would look at would be, is the practice pursuing a legitimate interest? And so is the practice potentially going to lose business? Is the practice going to lose clients you know, over this veterinarian's unfair competition? So the key words are legitimate interest. It has to be reasonable. So the, the non-compete can't be, in, the, in course, for the lawyers listening, you know, there is much state-by-state variation sure. here. Incredible, even county-by-county county variation. So, uh, so the second thing is, is it can't be overly broad. It can't be overly punitive or punishing to the associate or to the person that's, that the practice is seeking enforcement on. And that usually comes through one of three things. The time radius or the time that the non-compete is effective after the post after the employment, the radius, and so the, that's what most people talk about, a 5, 10, 15 mile radius. I've seen them everywhere from blocks to 250 miles that were reasonable. Just totally depends on the practice type, where it's located, competition in the area, where the clientele come from, etc. And then thirdly, the thing that we'll talk about is the scope of practice. So if you have an equine only practice, you would have no reason to limit small animal veterinary medicine. If you have a small animal practice, you would have no legitimate reason to limit equine practice. And so, you know, is the scope overly broad in those instances? Okay, so then that makes me think of another question that you kind of, you tend to hear a lot is in cases where there is no non-compete. So that's outside of the factor. Mm-hmm. You have an associate veterinarian who's working in a clinic who wants to buy another clinic, is planning to buy another clinic. And they want to give enough notice to their practitioner to make it fair, but then there's always this fear of being kicked out or booted or fired in that moment and they can't lose their job until the clinic's built or ready or that changeover is going to happen. Do you get a lot of those types of questions is like, how do I bridge that gap? How do I navigate that space? Oh yeah. Almost every single practice that I work with a buyer on has a component of this, of when are we going to put in notice at your previous position? Are you going to be moving across town? There's there's obviously some legal implications there. There's certainly some professional implications and we don't want to burn bridges in that situation. You know, so there's all these factors to weigh. But certainly, you know, practice owners, they're going to be scared of the change and there there could, and not could, many times those relationships do go south after that notice is given. And you're right, many times the notice will give, hey, I'm gonna give you as much heads up as I can. I'm gonna give you three months, two months to replace me, et cetera. And the veterinarian, the associate walks out without a job that afternoon. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that we have to be ready for and ready, you know, ready to go on. But, you know, a lot of thought goes into that decision when I'm working with a buyer. And it's another important aspect for seeking out that counsel, right? And to getting that advice because it's on a case-by-case basis. Certainly a case-by-case basis, contract-by-contract basis. And I'll back up to the restrictive covenants for a second. And restrictive covenants, non-competes, whatever you want to call them. Anybody that says that they're all enforceable or all not enforceable doesn't know what they're talking about. It really is a case, use the words case-by-case basis, state-dependent basis. And that's really why you need to have someone that is very well versed in this particular aspect of the law. 
In veterinary medicine, I feel like we take it all on ourselves. We have a tendency to just internalize and we spend all this time eating away at ourselves and our own brains. And like, I love this conversation. I love this lecture because I think it's really important for people to talk through these aspects and to know that the timing may be right. It might not be right. It's going to be scary. And like what you're doing, I, I think it's incredibly important and I love it. You want to hire great people? Find them from Clinician's Brief Career Center. Connect with candidates who grow your business and effectively care for your patients and your clients. Post your job today at cliniciansbrief.com backslash career dash center. Okay, so no pressure here. I'm going to tell you it's my keep it brief segment, but we rarely keep it brief, okay? So don't feel too much pressure to do that. I, I want to think about these shortages in staff, corporatization, laws, legalities, social media. There is a lot against practice owners these days, right? Bottom line, when somebody asks you, I want to, but am I ready? Is it right? I don't know if I can handle it. What's the best advice you give them that makes sense on paper, but it's still like a scary endeavor, like inspire our want to's? Gotcha. So this is not a brief never. <laughs> question. It is never it? is. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. But I guess the shortest way that I can say this is if an individual, and after working with you know dozens, if not 50, you know individuals that have bought veterinary practices, if they're actually having that thought to stop and say, am I ready? Then they're probably ready. It's the folks that go full-hearted, full-headed into the decision without stopping and taking a little introspective look at themselves that sometimes aren't ready. And so I guess this is what I'm saying is, is if you're having that conversation with yourself and saying, am I ready? Am I skilled enough? Do I have the things that it takes to own a practice? By simply having the insight on yourself to have that conversation with yourself, you're probably ready. So I would say absolutely go for it. If you're sitting and listening to this podcast and saying, how could this guy possibly ever doubt me? I'm certainly ready. There's nothing that can stop me at this point. Those would be the folks that I'm scared of. You're pumping the brakes for them. (laughs) A little too confident. Yes, exactly. And so, I mean, going into it, knowing you're probably going to get, your ego is going to get checked. You're going to get body checked. There's going to be bad days in practice ownership. And that's okay because most every practice owner will tell you and they, and we will complain, we will go gray haired, we will, you know, it will be, we will have some very hard days. But at the end of the day, every practice owner that I ever met says, that's a decision that I'm glad I made. And they're glad that they made that decision. They put the work in, they did sacrifice the family time, they did all that, but now their career is in a place where they can take time off, they're making good money, they have you know, a solid investment, their student loans are, you know, are, are on the wind down. So in the end, it is a good decision all the way around. And I can speak personally for that, that there was many days that I questioned my decision, you know, but now I'm glad I did. In the long run. In the long run. Outside of you and your practice, what are some other resources you send people to? Who are some other great ways to get this knowledge and where do you send people to learn more? Yeah, so great question. And so, you know, I kind of have a reading list that I, you know, that I go through. I really love The Servant by James C. Hunter. I really love Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lalloy. Anything from the, you know, Harvard Business Review series. And so I'm reading stuff out. I'm encouraging veterinarians and those in the veterinary profession to read stuff outside of the veterinary profession. A lot of good stuff in business and business ownership out there. Within the veterinary profession, I'm a huge proponent of the American Veterinary Medical Law Association, a collection of attorneys. There's about a 
120 of us out there that look specifically at components of veterinary law. Good website that gives us idea uh, that can give you ideas of state-specific attorneys and then also practice-type attorneys. And so a good place to go find an attorney and talk to someone. Also a lot of good resources there. I'll be honest with you, a lot of the older publications, and so let's go back to veterinary team brief. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff that's still out there on the web that is maybe it was published five years ago, but it's just as timely today. It has just the same amount of relevance when it comes to the team and leadership and management along those links. And so I actually go back and read a lot of those articles myself. And then lastly, there's a group called the called Vet Partners. And so yes. Vet Partners um, is a collection. Last time I checked, I think they have about 600 overall members. Many of them are consultants in the veterinary space. And so another good website where you can look and pick out a, a consultant that's in your location that's the type of consultant that you need. Those are great resources, Dr. Lance. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, talk through this with us. I am going to find more opportunities to have more of these conversations with you. And I really appreciate all your time. Thanks, Becky. My favorite thing to talk about, I'll close with this, buy a veterinary practice, you can do it. I love it. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.